Hello, hello, you guys. This is the Be Back Link podcast, and we are with you today with our friend Mabel. We are so excited to hear her stories today, and we we encourage you to just pause and listen up because it's going to be an amazing one. She is from North Virginia, and did you say the DMC? Is that what you called it? D, uh, DMV. DMV. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> confused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, um, I'm from Northern Virginia. I mean, I can give the city and state. I'm from Bristol, Virginia, but it's technically <laughs> okay. it's part of Northern Virginia, and we call it the DMV, uh, DC, Maryland, Virginia. Virginia, area, so. DMV, yeah. like where you would yeah. go get your license. Okay, yes, the DMV yes. area. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you are in her area, this is definitely one to listen up to. But of course, we have a review of the week. So I'm going to turn the time over to cute Julie, and then <laughs> we will dive into this story. Okay, um, okay. You know, I can't just go right into the review. I have to say something. Um that's really funny. You said cute, Julie. That's really funny because I have a friend, a longtime friend. When we were in the military, like we hardly ever see each other, but we do. She's like one of those friends that you just like pick her up, like right where you left off. Like it doesn't matter if it's been like a year since we've talked to each other, but like, um, so I, her name's Kelly and I would always call her cute Kelly. It's cute Kelly. And then she started calling me cute Julie. And like, nobody calls me cute Julie except for her. And so <laughs> when oh, you said cute funny. Julie, I was like, Oh, I miss my friend. I need to go Aww. call her after this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyways. Um, yes. Mabel from the DMV. Uh, <laughs> we are so excited to hear your story, but yes, I'm going to read your review. Okay. I really actually like this review. I read it on a previous podcast, but then I forgot to record that podcast. And so we had to, we had to get back on and start over and I had to pick a shorter review, but I really like this one. And I'm going to tell you why afterwards. Um, okay. So this is from informed mama and it's from Apple podcasts. And she says, I love listening to the inspirational stories of women of strength, trusting their bodies and doing what they were created to do. As a mama who's had a C-section, it's incredibly encouraging to hear that my feelings about my child's birth are valid and also exciting to me that this could be our story one day too. This in mind, as a labor and delivery nurse, it hurts my heart to hear of women not consenting to interventions and of all the overall mistrust of birth in a hospital setting. I do want to encourage all women that labor and delivery nurses and OBGYNs are not evil and we're not pushing for every woman to give birth in the OR. These are times or there, there are times when interventions are necessary for the safety of you and your child. We do have good intentions for you and your baby and both of your safety is our utmost priority. If you are a pregnant woman listening to this podcast and find yourself being anxious for your upcoming birth, please remember that the majority of us are honored to be there for this special day for you and want to honor your birth preferences as best we can. Please keep focusing on how strong you are, trust the process, and surround yourself with a birth team that will advocate for you. And I love that review because I, well, first of all, I love it when we have OBs and hospital midwives and labor and delivery nurses listen to our podcast and follow along with the VBAC link because I feel like change has to come from all sides, right? In order for there to be improvement in maternal health and our outcomes and the birth, the birth privileges and birth rights that we all want. We all want to improve birth in the United States, especially, but all over the world. And so I love this perspective. I think sometimes it's easy for us to, and this is coming from, I, I gave my three VBACs were at home. And so like this, keep in mind my perspective, but I think it's really easy sometimes for us to get really defensive with 
the hospital system and interventions. And yes, obviously, cesareans are heavily overused. That's why we're here. And <laughs> we know that interventions are always also overused. And sometimes the hospital system uh, feels like it is created to sometimes sabotage the birth process a little bit. But I like this reminder because it helps us to, to remember that most people in the hospital system really do want to be there, really do want to help you and want to see you have the safest and best birth that you possibly can. And I do want to add a little caveat in there that I know that there are some, some hospital staff, nurses, OBGYNs, maybe even hospital midwives that do operate in a poor manner and can seem like they don't have your best care at heart. And I just think it's important to remember that most of the time people are willing to be accommodating and helpful and supportive. I also don't want to discredit anybody that had a traumatic birth experience. Like I know we, this were like how many episodes in 189 or something. Um, we certainly have heard of quite a few of those stories too, but what I found, especially as a, being a doula here is that most people are willing to accommodate and be supportive of your birth preferences, as long as you make them known. And as long as it's within this, their scope of practice as well. Anyways, I've been mm-hmm. talking for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, <laughs> what would you add? Or should we just go? No, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is, I think that's great. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link podcast with Julie Frankham and Megan Heaton. VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. I am just so ready to dive into the story. So Mabel, without further ado, we welcome you to the VBAC link to share your story. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. And I thought that review was um, very helpful, a very helpful reminder. So it was nice to hear that. Uh, I I will start by saying that a a lot of my story is actually a lot of the information or the things that happened before I even got pregnant. And so I think a bulk of this story might really weigh heavy on my pregnancy and trying to conceive journey, which therefore helped me be successful with having a vaginal birth after myomectomy. So I don't know if you know much about fibroids and myomectomy, if that's something that you've heard of or you've encountered with clients or other feedback stories. Do you know, this is actually, um, especially fibroids specifically, we get messages about fibroids all the time. Like, hey, do you have any stories with people that have had fibroids and had a feedback or hey, like, do you know the my risk? So we're, I, I don't know a ton, a ton. So I'm excited to learn more. Awesome. So um, I'll start with that. So a fibroid is a benign uterine growth that it occurs in the uterus. They're benign, so they're not cancerous, but they can propose a lot of issues for women. Women can experience pelvic pain, excessive bleeding during her uh, menstrual cycle. They may even appear pregnant because the, the mass is so big and it's kind of projecting out of their uterus and causing their belly to kind of swell. Fibroids are actually a very common occurrence for women, um, not just in the U.S., but in the world. I think the statistics say that about 70% of women will experience fibroids at one point or another in their in their life. The statistic is quite disproportionate to Black women. 
Black women have a higher risk of getting fibroids. I think the statistic says eight out of 10 Black women have fibroids, whether they're symptomatic or not. And so, you know, no matter your racial background, fibroids is very much a part of the female experience I have come to find out. And um, depending on where you are in life, you may decide to do something about them or not. In fact, most women don't realize that they have a fibroid until they become pregnant or they're trying to get pregnant because uh, one of the best ways to identify fibroids is through ultrasound. So I have had friends and clients who say that, oh, I had a fibroid and I didn't know until my six week, you know, confirmation pregnancy appointment. And so what happened for me was that actually I was trying to conceive, you know, I got married at 26. We waited a year before we were serious about trying. And then the year we were trying to conceive, nothing was happening. And through a series of tests, I found out that I had fibroids and I had multiple fibroids and it was a wake up call because you know, years I had been experiencing extremely heavy periods. I wasn't the girl who got cramps, but I was the girl who literally um, hemorrhaged every month. (laughs) And so um, I was very grateful to find out that I had the fibroids because I had an answer to the issues that I was facing. And through some time, I decided that I was going to surgically remove them. Granted, every woman who has fibroids may treat it differently. But um, one of the more common ways of dealing with fibroids is to do a surgery, which is called a myomectomy. Another way that some women deal with fibroids is to do a hysterectomy. But most women who opt for a myomectomy are more so trying to preserve their um, fertility. And that's what I wanted to do, obviously. I was still young and I still, you know, hoping to get pregnant. And so thankfully, I was a pretty good candidate for a laparoscopic myomectomy. I don't want to get into the weeds, but there are different types of myomectomies that you can do. The laparoscopic myomectomy is known to be um, minimally invasive, whereas others, such as uh, an abdominal myomectomy, is where they kind of cut your uterus very much like a C-section, and they remove the fibroid. Instead of removing a baby, they're removing the fibroid. Thankfully, I didn't have to have such uh, an extensive surgery like the abdominal myomectomy. I was actually what my tax lady just had that exact. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Our tax lady. Thank you very much. Sorry. Yes. Our tax lady. Yes. And And she's worried that she'll never be able to have a vaginal birth because the doctor said, just to let you know, if, if you do get pregnant in the future, like it's C-sections from here on out. That is a very, very, and not even say very common. I would say that is the the feedback that every woman who goes through myomectomy will receive that feedback. It doesn't matter how invasive her procedure was. It doesn't matter how many fibroids they removed. It doesn't matter how you know well her recovery was. Usually a woman who goes through myomectomy, if she ends up getting pregnant thereafter, she will be a counsel to um, have a C-section at 37 weeks. And the concern for that is uterine rupture, very much like a C-section. Their concern is that because we have gone into your uterus and we have, you know, tampered with it more or less, you know, if you're doing an abdominal myomectomy, that's like one big incision. If you're doing a laparoscopic myomectomy like mine, they're like these tiny little cuts into the uterus that they 
they, you know, cut into the uterus and they kind of like, you know, take pieces of the fibroid out bit by bit. And so it, there are different ways to remove fibroids. However, it is a uterine procedure and every woman is different. Every woman's experience is different. Some women have multiple fibroids. Some women have one. Some women have, you know, fibroids inside the uterine cavity. Some have it within the wall, outside the wall. It really varies. And so I think, you know, a blanket response to avoid uterine rupture is to just go on and to have a a planned C-section at 37 weeks. And um, like I said, I was happy I was getting a laparoscopic myonectomy because when I was doing my research beforehand, all the research that I found said that women who had a laparoscopic myonectomy were good candidates for having a vaginal birth thereafter if they are treated as if they are a VBAC patient. And so in my head at that time, I was like, well, this is great. You know, I'm going to have this surgery and I'm going to have my vaginal birth. But when I, you know, went to post-op, one of my post-op appointments, you know, to talk about the procedure, my surgeon at the time told me that I had to have a C-section at 37 weeks. Something told me not to push it with her because I, I felt that, okay, she is my surgeon who did the surgery. She doesn't necessarily have to be the, the OB that ever delivers my babies. So when she told me that, I just kind of like took it in. But in the back of my mind, I was like, I have a lot of work to do. And that was in the sense of, you know, finding a supportive provider. Mind you, I was not pregnant at this time, but I knew that when the time came for me to be pregnant, I wanted someone who was confident and supportive in me having this type of delivery. Also at that time, because I had gone through so much with the fibroids, I was young and I realized that I didn't know much about women's health. I didn't know much about pregnancy, childbirth. I didn't know anything outside of what I was experiencing currently. So I took it upon myself to, you know, learn everything that I could. I actually trained as a doula at that time because everything that I was learning was fascinating me. And then also I realized that what I was going through was quite unique and it was not going to be easy. And so I felt that I had to be confident with my, my understanding of birth and pregnancy so that I could advocate for myself better. Also at that time, I, I felt that because nobody that I knew and nothing on the internet kind of pointed me to anybody else who had a vaginal birth after my anectomy, I felt that I just took it upon myself to be the one. <laughs> so I kind of just was like, okay, if, if ever I get pregnant and I do have a vaginal birth, I'm going to like shout from the mountaintops and tell everybody what I did, how I did it. Um, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. So if anyone's listening to this and they've heard my story on, on another birth podcast, it's not that I'm boasting. It's really that um, I believe that edu education and anecdotal evidence is just as valuable as evidence-based information. And so I learned about VBAC. I actually started learning about childbirth by researching VBAC because I took, I looked at myself as a pretty much a VBAC um, patient or, or individual. I wasn't pregnant, but I just felt that when the time came, I had to look at myself like a VBAC person. And so I read a lot of research and I'll share a lot of that at the end. But from what I have gathered over the past five years is that the risk of rupture for a woman who pursues a vaginal birth after myomectomy is anywhere between 0.4 to 1.7%. 
So you can imagine that with such a, a low risk of rupture, you would think doctors would be comfortable or okay with supporting women to have vaginal birth. But what I found out in that time was that most doctors are not supportive of VBAC. So it was going to be quite impossible for me to find a, another provider who would be supportive of a VBAM. That's what we call it, VBAM. And so uh, I went on the ICANN website. And at the time, they had a list of providers in this uh, DMV area. And they had a list of all the providers who and their C-section rate. They don't have that anymore, but at that time they did. And so what I did is I went down the list and I chose providers who had a rate of like 20% or lower. And I just wrote it down in a notebook and I was making phone calls. And then I would make appointments and then I would go to the offices. And one after one, all of them barely gave me two minutes to even like get the words out of my mouth. Once they heard what I was talking about and saw my report, they were like, no. I went to over a dozen providers in, in within a, a one year span. Um, again, I wasn't pregnant, but I knew that when the time came, I needed support and they mm -hmm. all told me no. And so I was extremely defeated, but at, I had a, a mentor and she, she was like my, my doula um, trainer. And she gave me the name of one provider and she said, just go to him. He's like really cool. He has a pretty low C-section rate. I know him personally. Maybe he will support you. And I went, I had an appointment with him and he, he did. He said, I have never done this before, but you know, I, I looked at your report and I feel like it's worth a try. And wow, it, that's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was amazing after, you know, getting all of those no's, finally having someone like, listen and, I, and hear me, you I know, mean, like, yeah, it just, I totally yeah. get it. I, that <laughs> happened to me. I went to 12 doctors also. And yeah. everyone was like, me, well, you could try. Oh, I wouldn't. And it's just like to find that doctor to say, you know what? Yeah, I'll support you in this. Let's do it. Yeah. It's like it so amazing. It's, it's a turning point. And I, I know we talk a lot about supportive providers. Now I'll, I'll circle back on that. But the the freedom you feel when you just have a doctor that you respect and, and you know, it's reciprocated, mm -hmm. um, it, it goes so far. And it, I, I always say that that appointment was the turning point in my trying to conceive journey because I got pregnant the mm -hmm. month after. Mm -hmm. And um, this is for someone who had been trying to get pregnant for five years. It was like, God just was like, okay, this is your doctor. Now it's time. And yes. I don't know. I just think it was very serendipitous. I, I, I'm just so grateful for him. But I did. I got pregnant. Yeah, it was. And I got pregnant and y'all, I had a great pregnancy. I was happy. I felt beautiful. I felt sexy. I was my strongest. I, I, I just loved being pregnant. It was, it was probably one of the best times of my life. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, at, at around 20, 26 weeks though, my doctor that I love so much died. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, he oh did. My he, gosh. Had, he had a, a heart attack. And he oh died. And I mean, it was a, it was a huge blow for me, not just because, you know, this was someone that I really leaned on for my, my dream delivery, but also he was a very, very well-respected and well-known OBGYN in this area. And so it was a huge blow for the community, not just mm -hmm. me, but everyone else, every woman who oh, yeah. just wanted great quality care. We, we lost a giant in, in, in the, um, the birth world. So it was a blow for me because 
I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and right. I decided, I just decided to just um, forge on. I, I, at that point, once I knew that he supported me, there was nothing anyone else could say. So even if the other doctors in the practice, you know, started to show any type of hesitancy, it went over my head because I was like, Dr. Gonzalez said he's going to support me. I don't care what y'all say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got the, mm-hmm. I was, I was very stubborn. However, they, they weren't pushy. They didn't ever talk about C-section or anything, but the vibe was very different in the office. And I decided to switch over to a midwife and OB practice. My doula suggested it and I gave it a shot and I had heard about midwives and, you know, obviously by that time I was trained as a doula. So I was familiar with midwifery care, but Mm -hmm. because, you know, the unique, my unique history of having a myomectomy, I just didn't see myself as eligible to to be with the midwife, if if I could put it that way. No, yeah, that totally makes sense though, because there are a lot of people that rule themselves out of midwifery care. But they they but they are totally qualified for midwifery care, but they don't think so. Yeah, that's so mm-hmm. true. And mm-hmm. um, even at that time, I I don't think I realized that they were hospital based midwives. I, I I had learned and known about birth centers and home birth, but I had never interacted with a hospital based midwife. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say it was it it all aligned up accordingly because when I did switch over to that practice, I was 36 weeks. I was very, very far along in my pregnancy. But then also they told me, they're like, hey, look, we we usually wouldn't do this. But we're only doing this because we respect your 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 doctor, you know, Dr. Gonzalez. Mm. Um, so I have a feeling that if it was the other way around, if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have found anybody in this area. So they just, you know, they, they took me in as a late transfer. And at that point in my pregnancy, I was so firm on having a vaginal birth that I, I called the shots. Like I went to, I went to my appointments with like, you know, all of the research that I had. And I was like, if you have any questions, you could read these articles. I'm not going to talk about this. You know, like I was very, I was very, I was very not annoying, but I don't know. I just felt like at that point in my pregnancy, I didn't have time for any negative energy, not, not from my inner circle and not from my medical team. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, they weren't pushy, but you know, they had their opinions about things. And long story short, the agreement that we came upon was that I, w- I refused to be induced because I didn't want anything to lead to a higher risk of rupture. I, I was also diagnosed with gestational diabetes in my pregnancy. And, you know, I had done my research. I had done my own risk assessment. And I felt that if my, my diabetes was well controlled, I, I should be able to go past my due date. And so that was a big thing for me, having the freedom and the respect to, to go past my due date without any type of pressure from, from the team. And they agreed. And so I made it to 40 weeks and eventually at 40 and six days, I went into labor Hmm. and I I would honestly say it was a very straightforward labor. It was, you know, I went into labor at the middle of the night. I labored at home with my doula for hours. I think my first contraction was like at 4 a.m. And I was finally ready to go to the hospital <coughs> at uh, 4 p.m. And so when I got admitted, I was five centimeters and I just continued to labor in, in our labor and delivery room. I did all the things. I 
was on, you know, the peanut ball and on the birth ball and doing all positions. And um, I was able to uh, uh, negotiate um, intermittent monitoring. So um, they let me on and off the monitors every, you know, 40 minutes or so. And so um, I really, I'm just really grateful that I had a, a team that gave me the space to do things my way, despite how unique you know, my, my uterine history was, um, at around nine centimeters by this time, I think I had, if I got admitted to the hospital at 4 PM, I decided to get the epidural around like 1 30 AM the next day. So I had labored for a long, long time and I was just so exhausted. And so, um, they checked me, they said I was nine and, you know, baby hadn't descended much. And so I opted for the epidural to, to rest. And it was the best decision for me. I, I took a, a, a nap maybe for a few hours. And when I woke up, it was time to push. And I pushed for about two hours and my son was born. Mm. And I tell you, the minute he came out, like, my, I feel like my brain just exploded. <laughs> Like I was, you know, we always say, oh, my mind was blown. Like literally my mind was blown. I, I could not believe that for so long I was told that a vaginal birth was never an option for me, that it was, I, my uterus was going to be, you know, destroyed and that I couldn't do it and that I shouldn't do it. And then finally, here comes this, this child out of me. And <laughs> I was like, I can't believe I almost missed out on this opportunity. I can't yeah. believe that someone almost took this from me because they had never done it before, right? A lot of what, you know, we call myomectomy a special scar. So there are other special scars, right? Like classical mm -hmm. T inverted, mm -hmm. J incision, myomectomy is one of them as well. And I'm not here on this podcast to tell every person who's had a special scar that you should go and run out and have a vaginal birth. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that many a times because the literature and research is so it's, it's not, there's not a lot of it. Right. So because there's very minimal research done on this topic, a lot of us are just kind of categorized as, you know, extremely high risk and, it's not even worth it for us to go on to even pursue a vaginal birth. And I feel like the, my whole process leading to the birth of my first son was really a lesson on self-education and self-advocacy. And I know that I'm supposed to be sharing my birth story, but it, this is really just about the, the work that it took for me to have this vaginal birth. Because to be honest, my birth story is not any more special than the next woman who had a vaginal birth. But what it is, 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 is understanding and, uh, and believing in physiological birth with the hopes that your body will do the work that it's intended to do, despite the fact that it has gone through a surgery. And so at that moment, when my son was born, I, I was just like, there's nothing anybody, there's nothing anyone can tell me that I can't do. Like the fact that I had this child after a myomectomy, after multiple fibroids, after, you know, such a hard, you know, uh, trying to conceive journey. 
And it was pretty much a pretty much a seamless delivery. I was so, so, so proud of myself and tr- I truly felt empowered in that moment. And so he was born and he was beautiful and he was big. He was nine pounds, six ounces. And I'm just so happy that I gave myself that chance to have the opportunity to experience a vaginal birth. I will say that you know, birth is not without risk. VBAC is not without risk. And same thing for vaginal birth after my amectomy. I, after I delivered him and my body was ready to deliver the placenta, I experienced a a hemorrhage and it was a quite a severe hemorrhage. It was something that I personally was blindsided to. I had never, you know, after all the research that I was doing, I never really read about things like that. So, um, it was scary, but it was handled mm-hmm. swiftly and it was handled very well. And I believe I was in the right place and in the right environment to, you know, help my body recover um, immediately after. And so I did, I did have a hemorrhage and I personally will say that I can't, I cannot attest it to the myomectomy. It could have been a number of factors as to why I hemorrhaged, but I did. And thankfully, um, through a variety of tools, they were able to um, manage the hemorrhage and I was still able to attend to my baby and breastfeed as soon as possible. And I went home within the usual time frame for a vaginal birth. And so after that delivery and that experience, I was, I was so thrilled and empowered by that experience that I told my husband that if I have the opportunity to do it again. I would, I would love to do it at home or at, at a birth center. And so, um, for my second, I had my my second son um, last year. Um, I pursued a birth center delivery, and um, again, I had a beautiful and wonderful pregnancy. Very straightforward. We did talk about my risk of of hemorrhage, and so we came up with a plan as to how to actively manage hemorrhage. But for him, for my second, again. Um, my body went into labor at 39 weeks and I labored for a couple of days. And then finally um, it was go time. And um, I think I had about three hours of active labor and he was born at the birthing center. And with him, I had a water birth. And so just looking at the, the whole scheme, the whole, um, the whole, you know, experience of being pregnant twice, having, you know, two vaginal births after my myomectomy, it, it, it just kind of makes me feel that for any woman who is seeking a vaginal birth after any uterine procedure, whether it's a C-section or a myomectomy, that there is a lot of work that um, has to be done emotionally and mentally, but it is very possible. And I, I, I'm so sorry when I hear other women who've had myomectomies be told immediately that they have to have a C-section because we know what that language does, that terminology of have to. Right. It makes it makes us feel that, you know, we are incapable, that it that birth is absolutely dangerous for us. And it's it's not true. It, there is a difference between absolute and relative risk. And for me, I I um, I leaned on the relative risk and um, I succeeded for my second born, even though I did not hemorrhage with him. I did have issues with um, delivering my placenta. And so for him, even though his birth was 
it was beautiful and perfect. I did have to get transferred to the hospital to remove my placenta, which actually came out quite easily <laughs> when I got there. But um, it took some time when I was in the birth center. And so I tra we transferred over to the hospital to deliver the placenta. And, um, you know, for both deliveries, it was quite traumatic to my body, not to me emotionally, but for my body, it was a very traumatic experience. But I like to talk about these things because um, I think transparency is important. And then I also say this with understanding that just because it happened to me doesn't mean it's going to happen to you. I don't think that, you know, just because we hear other women go through some unique experiences that it should deter you from pursuing your goal. Um, I think we are all capable of assessing our own risk and making the right decisions that um, are important to us. So I can go on and on about this. No, um, I love yeah, that though. <laughs> it's such an important We're just soaking it all in. <laughs> yeah, well, it really is. It's such an important thing to remember that, you know, just because someone says this doesn't mean it's not right for you. And then just because someone had that expert, like a really good positive experience doesn't mean it's going to be your experience either. It's, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. so hard. I mean, it's, it's just how we have to go in life in all things because everyone's different. Everyone has a different circumstance, a, every different body, everything. Right. And even though one pregnancy goes one way, that doesn't mean the next pregnancy is going to go the other. And so mm -hmm. it's just so important to remember that, but I just love how you fought for what you felt was right for you, because that is a really, really, really hard thing to do. Like really hard thing to do. Oh yeah. And it, then, it is. <laughs> yes. And then to have such a traumatic, like what the heck just happened? I just lost my doctor and the support that I was, you know, getting after looking oh, for gosh. so many, like that yeah. had to have just like shook you, you know? And so I'm just, you I'm know, just so proud that, of you. Thank you. And, and, you know, and I think you two are doulas. I'm a doula too. So this is kind of going into the doula speak, you know, yep. I, I, you know, like as doulas, we always, especially for our VBAC clients, we stress so heavily on finding a supportive provider. Mm -hmm. We do, we, we make it almost seem as if like, if you don't have one, you know, good luck to you, which actually for me, I have, I have come over the years, not just with my experience, but with others and my clients, I've come to realize that not every VBAC um, hopeful is going to find a supportive provider. Mm -hmm. you, you, we, you, you, you have to come to terms and accept the fact that your doctor just may not support you and they may say or do things to deter you from making mm -hmm. that decision. But despite that, you must press on anyway. Mm -hmm. it's and for me especially yes. when dr gonzalez died at that point i could have just been like well you know i tried but at that point i was like i'm gonna have this baby whether he's alive or not i'm gonna have this baby whether he's on call or not because we know that happens too like you have a mm -hmm. great provider you like and then they're not on call and then you get like somebody else and everything seems like you know mm -hmm. a, a, a chaotic event and so I, that's something that i i really feel personal about is that even if you don't have a supportive provider, you still have the personal responsibility to know your rights and to know your options for your VBAC birth. You can't lean on your doctor for the decisions that are only for you to make. And that's how I kind of pursued my birth experience. And that's almost how I lead with my clients in the sense that 
We're just going to gather all the information that we can get and use that as a decision, as a, as a means to make a decision. Of course, your doctor may say or do certain things and you may agree or disagree, but at the end of the day, this is about you. This is about you and your baby and your body. And it's going to be up to you to make up your mind to press on or to allow all the negative energy or all of the conflicting information, you know, haze your view. And I, I, I feel that for me, I, I'm no, spe- no more special than the next person. <laughs> I really, I'm not. It's not like I got lucky. It's not that, you know, I'm super smart. It's just that I've made up my mind. I, I made up my mind. And I, and I hope that anyone listening to this, that if you were ever, you know, unsure, or if you feel like, oh, my partner doesn't support me, or my mother-in-law says this, or my doctor doesn't tolerate me, you need to make up your mind. And then from there, you move forward. If you need to hire a doula, if you need to take 20 different birth classes, if you need to read all the books, if you need to pray, if you need to replay all the podcasts, you do what it takes to get to where you need to be. And even if the outcome varies from what you were hopeful for, at least you can say you did everything you could. And that's how I, I, I kind of, I kind of forged for this, for this, uh, for this uh, delivery um, experience, because I didn't have, I went on YouTube. There's nobody on YouTube. There's nobody on Google. There's nobody in, in all the birth clubs on baby center or like there's no podcast of anybody who's had a vaginal birth after myomectomy however i know it's been done there's no way that they could have done all of that research and there were women who had to be a part of that research so even if you don't know anybody in your your life or or your your inner circle who is pursuing a vbac or a vbam it doesn't mean that it can't be done and I think that's how I, I just kind of looked at it like, okay, I don't have anybody that I can use as a resource or as a reference, but I know that I am not an, an anomaly. And I also know that I'm not asking for too much. I'm not asking for a vaginal birth. I'm asking for support. I'm asking for you to hear me. I'm asking for you to give me time. I'm asking for you to let my body do the work, let my body do the work instead of you dictating what you think my body should do. Um, and I don't think it's too much to say that if I don't want another surgery, I don't want another surgery. And I think that's the part that blew my mind when I started learning about advocating for myself. The fact that my, my pursuit was not about the, what, my, the, what my body was able to do. It wasn't about my body's ability. It was really, it really at the core of it, it came down to liability. What are these hospitals and doctors liable to? They're not it's safer, it's, it's, it's um, easier and, and quote unquote safer for them to do a C-section than to let my body have a trial of labor. But nobody was telling me about the risk of a C-section. Nobody told me the risk of having a C-section at 37 weeks. They just said I had to have one. You know, if I, if I hemorrhaged with a vaginal birth, God knows what could have happened with a C-section, but nobody told me about that. So a lot of these things really kind of boil down to you know, pulling what you understand about birth, uh, what you have read as the evidence, but then also believing in anecdotal evidence. I believe that a woman's experience is just as viable as, 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 as evidence as something that I found 
on a Google search. So this is just, you know, how I kind of approached my birth. <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm on a soapbox or something, but um, no, are you kidding I'm, me? I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm just like, yes, yes. I have goosebumps for days over here. Oh my gosh. I'm just like, do you, do you want a job? Because we, we, I would love to hear you just, I don't know. I would, I would love to just sit and listen to you just all oh, go on and on about all the things you're talking about. Um, Wow, like you're not asking for a vaginal birth, like you're just asking to be supported and you're just asking for somebody to listen to you and let you have things the way you want to experience them. You know, obviously like there's the caveats to go there that, you know, we want your safety and we want you to be healthy and everything like that, but you just want somebody to support you and believe in you. And that just like, oh, gave me so many chills. I just loved it. There's no reason why we should have such a low feedback rate in this country. Absolutely not. Knowing how how successful majority of women should be. There's no reason why we should have a, a nine, 10% VBAC rate in this country. This learning about VBAC helped me to realize this is not about the, the vaginal aspect. This is about like women's rights. If we really wanted to get like to the core of it, this is about like a woman's right to make it an informed decision or to make an informed refusal. And unfortunately, we are looked down upon if we refuse what our doctors or midwives or whatever the medical team says. And so for me, of course, I, I was like, you know, I was looked at like I was crazy. How dare you want to go against our hospital's protocol? But when it comes down to it, I have the right to do that. It's almost like if, if a woman has breast cancer and you tell that woman, hey, these are all your options. You can go through this surgery, you can take this medication, or you could do nothing. If that woman said, I don't want to do anything, it is not that doctor's place to do and say everything to coerce her or to scare her into changing her mind. It's not that doctor's place to do that because you have given her the information, you have given her the risk and the benefits to her options for, for treatment. And if she decides to do something contrary to what you've decided for her, then you have to respect that. And the same thing goes for feedback. If you tell this woman, hey, these are all your risks and benefits, these are all the things, and she says, you know what, I still want to pursue a VBAC, there's no, it is, it is, it is, it is wrong to, 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 to apply every fear tactic and every coercion and every, you know, barrier to make that woman comply to what you want. But that's what's going on in America today. And that's why we have such terrible outcomes. And I'm speaking this as a Black woman. Right, a black woman who is highly um, susceptible to fibroids, a black woman who is highly susceptible to maternal mortality, a black woman where in America black women have the highest rate of C-section. We do. We also have the, the highest rate of poor outcomes, not just for maternal mortality, but for even neonatal mortality. So this this is this is bigger than what anybody can think about. This is really coming down to the core of what type of care are we giving women? Are we just giving everyone the run of the mill care or are we individualizing it according to this woman's needs? And obviously it's not the latter. If we were individualizing maternal health care, we will see better outcomes. We would see more VBACs. We would see less hemorrhages. We would see less death. But until that day comes, you as a woman, you have to, you, you can't go into birth blindly. 
You can't go into VBAC blindly. You can't go into your first birth blindly. You have to have your eyes, ears, heart, and mind open because a lot of things can be unpredictable, but I'll tell you, it's not birth. Birth isn't as unpredictable as everyone says. What usually makes it unpredictable are a lot of the, the, the factors that our medical system imposes on us. So I don't know. I'm going to stop talking because ooh, I'm getting hot. <laughs> but I, no, I, do I, love say it. This. <laughs> I, I do say this with saying that um, vaginal birth after myomectomy is possible. It is. I had one. I know many women have had one. I'm a part of a special SCARS group. And um, our rate for vaginal birth after myomectomy is quite high. And the women who did not have a vaginal birth, it was not due to rupture. So what I say is that for the small number of women who have pursued vaginal birth after myomectomy, they either had the vaginal birth or they had a C-section, but it was not related to rupture. And um, uh, I have even counseled um, other women who reached out to me and a number of those women have gone on to have vaginal births. I have um, had three clients who hired me. They had a myomectomy and they went on to have a vaginal birth. And a couple of them have had unmedicated vaginal births for their first child. So I feel like, you know, anything is possible if you have the support and the, and the, the heart to go for it. So absolutely love that. Like you're 100% right. You had a lot of things working against you. Like you had the myomectomy, you were, you had providers switching, you had your provider. Um, you had to change providers, excuse me, you had to change providers near the end of your pregnancy. Um, and you're, you're dealing with, um, a unique type of special scar, which yes, plug into the special scars, Facebook group Mm -hmm. and the page and website, specialscars.org. I think it is, um, it's dot something, but it's not.com. Um, and You are also, like you said, as a black woman birthing in America, which you, your cesarean rate is three to four times as high. You're two to three times more likely to die in childbirth. And those are just all things that are inherently wrong with our, and frankly, just wrong with our medical system right now. And I just absolutely love it. And you um, kept saying during your story that um, there's nothing special about you, but I disagree 110%. I think that everything about you is special and I am just so grateful. I know Megan's going to talk in just a minute, but I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on <laughs> and sharing your story today because um, you're an incredible woman and anybody, are you still practicing as a doula? I am, but this is my last year practicing because yes, I'm going back to school to be a midwife. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say more. to be a midwife. Yeah, oh, yeah. That makes me so happy. Seriously though, you're going to change your birth community. You're going to completely change your birth Absolutely. community. You are mind-blowing. I've got the chills all listening to you. Like Julie said, like I, you could go on and on and on and on. And we just eat you all up. Like just uh, yeah. eating all of your words up. <laughs> like there's not, there's not one second that I would not, I wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, just chicks talking forever. Nope. I'd be like, give me more. Keep talking. Oh, you no. are amazing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Seriously. You're <I> know. <laughs> so awesome. No, so awesome. And same as Julie, like so grateful that you could be on the podcast and share this story because like I said, like we have, we have people writing us asking and saying, we, why we want a vaginal birth. Is this possible? Is this possible at all? So seriously, so, so happy for you. Yeah. I know this is not like your typical birth story podcast before, I guess the flow of this conversation isn't like 
the others, but I do hope that anyone who's listening, if ever they had a question or inquiry, or if they even just wanted to, to chat, I do offer consultations, even though I won't be practicing as a doula for a while. Um, I'm still available in, on, on different, in different ways. So. Absolutely. And how can people contact you? Yeah, you can reach out to me. Um, I'm very active on Instagram. So my, my, the name of my business is within her birth services. So you can find me on Instagram at within her birth services. Um, and through that platform, you can um, find my email address and or DM me. Also, you can check me out at www.withinherbirthservices.com. So um, yeah, that's how you can find me. Perfect. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Thank you so much. Seriously. Like, yeah. Thank you. Seriously. Interested in sharing your VBAC story on the podcast? Submit your story at the vbaclink.com slash share. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to the vbaclink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.